Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $50 for print plus online. Hello, I'm Christopher Menz. The ABR Cultural Tours are on again with our commercial partners Academy Travel. Next up is a tour of Victoria's famous regional galleries, from the Yarra Valley to Shepparton and Bendigo. Join Peter Rose and myself for eight days of conversation, gallery visits, restaurants, beautiful countryside, and ABR's unique brand of conviviality. The dates are October 12 to 19. See the ABR or Academy Travel websites for full details or to make a booking. Not long before the 1845 premiere of Tannhäuser, Richard Wagner was holidaying at the Spa of Marienbad. He had with him a copy of the anonymous German epic Lohengrin, and he was possessed. Ever the sensualist, he described the impact in luxurious terms. Quote, no sooner had I got into my bath at noon than I felt an overpowering desire to write Lohengrin, and this longing so overcame me that I could not wait the prescribed hour of the bath, but when a few minutes elapsed, I jumped out and, barely giving myself time to dress, ran home to write down what I had in mind. I repeated this for several days until the complete sketch for Lohengrin was on paper. Unquote. Writing to a friend, Wagner said, I wrote the final words of the libretto yesterday. I have now only the music to compose. What other composer would put it so nonchalantly? Neville Cardus has observed, quote, Every sentence in a Wagner libretto was a vein of music waiting to flow as soon as opened. The first performance of Lohengrin took place in Weimar on the 28th of August 1850 with Liszt at the podium. Wagner was by then a political refugee from Saxony after the 1849 May Revolution in Dresden. He would not see a performance of Lohengrin until 1861 in Vienna. Lohengrin stands at the crossroad. Wagner was impatient for change. His art, Michael Tanner has suggested, quote, springs from a radical dissatisfaction with life. But the sources of that dissatisfaction lay so deep that he had the greatest difficulty in finding an adequate situation to embody it, unquote. Soon after the Weimar premiere, Wagner wrote to the literary scholar Adolf Starr, quote, There is a whole world between Lohengrin and my present plans. What is so terribly embarrassing for me is to see a snakeskin I shed long ago dangled in front of me willy-nilly as if I was still in it. If I could have everything my way, Lohengrin would be long forgotten in favour of new works that prove even to me, that I have made progress, unquote. Yet the snakeskin begins with a prelude of ethereal beauty, based on one of the leitmotifs that begin to infiltrate Wagner's music, that of the Holy Grail. Michael Tanner again, quote, 
as the most intelligent and self-conscious, as well as the most intellectual of artists, Wagner could see that in the prelude he had written a new kind of music, one for which he had a dangerous gift, the music of hypnosis." Unquote. The new production in Melbourne is a co-production of Opera Australia and La Monet in Brussels, where it had its premiere in 2018. It is the work of French director Olivier P and his regular designer Pierre-André Weitz. Gone is the River Chet, the Fortress of Antwerp, the Bridal Chamber. Gone is the Swan. Instead, on a very effective revolve, we have a ruined theatre in Berlin, bombed during World War II and now gingerly inhabited, despite the debris, by the players of Brabant. The choristers, brilliantly illuminated, occupy the devastated deers in the theatre. Occasionally they join the principals on stage. P, like other European directors, is haunted by the putative and debatable link between Richard Wagner, who died in 1883, and the origins of Nazism. In a useful interview, P has stated, quote, I believe that the link between German Romanticism and National Socialism is most apparent in Lohengrin. He contends that Wagner, quote, anticipated the possible outcome of an alliance between German metaphysics and German nationalism, unquote. In a woollier passage, he argues that, quote, when directing an opera, you always have to try and capture the zeitgeist, otherwise you ignore the subversiveness of the work, unquote. Lohengrin, to some of us, feels too innocent, too elemental, too daft in a way, to qualify as subversive. Ultimately, almost embarrassingly, good does indeed triumph over evil, whatever that means. The massive set, with its sombre palette, complemented by Weitz's black costumes, with occasional bursts of grey and a stylish off-white overcoat for Lohengrin, mostly works, especially at the end, during Infernumland, when the sorrowful Lohengrin casts a terrifying shadow on the theatre's rear wall. Now and then, P indulges in clichéd effects seemingly designed to satirise the drama. Telramund's anguish at the start of Act Two, when he rues his disgrace and banishment, is too genuine to be mocked by a noose dangled from the ceiling. One soon tires of the buckets of post-war debris passed along the row of Trumafrauen. During the famous march that precedes the bridal chorus in Act Three, P introduces a sprightly acrobat, a camp throwback a la Lenny Riefenstahl. The audience duly applauded the acrobat's one-armed plank. Everything is circus after all. Apparently, the chalking up of poetry and symbols is a signature trick of Olivier P's. Der Todd ist ein Meister aus Deutschland, the graffito on the back of the theatre, comes from Paul Celan's poem Todesfüge, or Death Fugue. Then there are the mysterious symbols, patiently dawed by Ortrude. Not random road signs, as some may have deduced, these are drawn from esoteric Nazi iconography, the Celtic Cross, 
and the black sun, a kind of sun wheel. Some hint, some note in the welcome program might have helped Australian audiences here. Of the six principals, three were Australian. Warwick Fife, Daniel Samagi and Simon Meadows. Samagi, Opera Australia's Votan in next year's Ring in Brisbane, brought his usual presence and volume to the King's role with its testing high passages. Fife, our herald, fresh from his magnificent Votan in Melbourne Opera's recent De Volcura, was every bit as good as when he sang the role of Herald in Melbourne 20 years ago. Simon Meadows, an outstanding Elbrick in last year's Das Rheingold from Melbourne Opera, sang with equal power and flair as the nefarious Friedrich von Telramund. Telramund and his wife, Ortrud, are wonderfully unscrupulous. Theirs is a Macbethian marriage steeped in intrigue and manipulation. Ortrud is certainly the most powerful figure in the opera. Interestingly, Wagner saw her as a politician, a member of a class he abhorred. In 1852, Wagner wrote to Liszt, quote, Ortrud is a woman who does not know love. Her nature is politics. A male politician disgusts us. A female politician appalls us, unquote. Ortrud is such a meaty role. One thinks of fine performances from Nance Grant back in 1985 and Elizabeth Connell in 2002. Our Ortrud on this occasion was the French-Russian mezzo-soprano Elena Gabori. We first heard Gabori in Sydney four years ago when she sang Amneris in David Livermore's LED Happy production of Aida. At the time I wrote, this was brilliant singing, fearlessly enacted, unquote. Nothing has changed. In her role debut as Ortrud, Gabori, busy, saucy, baleful, mordant, threatened to walk away with the show. Very funny to watch. She played Telramund, that reliable dupe of a husband like a fiddle. This was a creepily filial kind of coupling, brilliantly conveyed by these two young singer-actors. The sheer scale of Gabori's voice is phenomenal. Even at the end of the opera, when Ortrud pushes her way through the crowd and exalts in her perfidy, the high notes were ringing, as if Gabori could have sung the role all over again. Gabori's Asuchena in Opera Australia's new Il Trovatore in Sydney this coming July will be quite an event. Emily McGee was Elsa of Brabant. Poor, vulnerable, vestal Elsa, gullible and masochistic, another of Wagner's truly silly female characters. McGee, American-born and now in her mid-forties, sings roles such as Ava, Ellen Orford and Salome. She and Kaufman have been performing together for years. McGee, with her sure technique, fine diction and high-floated notes, was at her best in Elsa's dream in Act One, and during the long, complex scene in Act Two, when Ortrud, facing exile and disgrace, oilily beguiles Elsa and persuades her to do the one thing that Lohengrin has enjoined her never to do, that is, to ask about his name, his origins, his ancestry. This is one of the finest scenes in the opera, and both women were at their best. After the festal opening in Act Three, 
The set for the conjugal scene, hardly the bridal chamber Wagner had intended, did McGee and Kaufman no favours. This was a kind of three-tiered set-room, with props of all kinds, and busts of Goethe and Beethoven and Wagner and all. The long love duet that follows, rightly described by Gustav Kobe as one of the sweetest and tenderest passages of which the lyric stage can boast, is another highlight of this opera, but here it was compromised by the pinched, vertiginous set. Placed high above the stage, McGee had difficulty projecting into the vast state theatre. Our attention was diverted by the newlyweds' complicated movements and ascents, a distraction from the drama of Elsa's stubborn insistence on learning Lohengrin's name, which shatters their accord. The chorus under Dean Bassett was in mighty form throughout, and how good it was to hear a young Australian conducting. To who Matheson's subtle and sympathetic conducting should take him far, Orchestra Victoria has rarely sounded better. Jonas Kaufman has been a frequent visitor to Australia since 2014, when he gave concerts in Sydney and Melbourne, exclusively French and Italian fair, no Wagner. We next heard him as Parsifal in 2017, a concert version, and this was followed in 2019 by André Chenier, also in concert. In a post-lockdown coup, Opera Australia has lured the German tenor back to Australia in one of his most celebrated roles, his first fully staged production in this country. Kaufmann, who recently added Peter Grimes to his repertoire in Vienna, is now 52, prime time for tenors. Inevitably, the voice has changed since 2002 when I first heard him. This was four years before Kaufman became internationally famous after singing Alfredo at the Met. La Monet had brought its celebrated production of The Damnation of Faust to Dresden with Susan Graham and Jose Van Damme. But who was this impossibly good-looking Faust with the long dark curls and the thrilling high notes of rare amplitude? Well, we found out. Kaufman's voice now is darker, richer, with unusual baritonal qualities. The high notes are still clarion and utterly secure. Kaufman knows this role inside out. He moved and sang with complete assurance, easily negotiating the tedious chair that the principals had to use whenever they mounted the stage. Few opera singers look graceful climbing onto a kitchen chair. After the third summons by the Herald, the knight normally arrives on a boat drawn by that kitschy swan to some of the greatest music in all opera. Instead, Olivier P. has Lohengrin romping around backstage with an otios boy dressed in white, the ghost of the murdered brother Gottfried, perhaps. Then Lohengrin moves on stage and presents himself as Elsa's champion. All that is left of the swan is a handful of feathers. Lohengrin then farewells the swan to exquisite music, sung beautifully by Kaufman, mostly unaccompanied. Then he introduces the requisite steel in his voice as Lohengrin offers Elsa, defamed by Telramund and accused of murdering her missing brother, his hand in marriage, on one condition. For Lohengrin, like the ring that will follow, 
is an opera about the making and breaking of contracts. At the end of the opera, after Elsa's betrayal, Oh Elsa, what have you done to me? cries Lohengrin. Kaufmann moved front stage and sang in Fenemland, the great aria of declaration and extrication, music we know already from the prelude. Here, Kaufmann was at his most magnetic. Rarely has a Melbourne audience held its breath for so long. Kaufmann's dynamics are always daring. He's capable of such stillness, such hush. Lohengrin is one of those idealised, lonely heroes who suit Kaufmann temperamentally. He seems most focused, most energised, when alone on stage. In Infernumland, Kaufmann risked much with the inward fervour of his singing of the early passages, especially the description of the Grail and its wondrous power. It was a heart-stopping moment in the theatre. The aria ended radiantly. The farewell was similarly poignant. In all, it was a memorable and suspenseful performance from the German tenor. Olivier P., in the interview mentioned earlier, spoke of the synesthetic dimension of Wagner's art. Quote, Its effect is such that sometimes I don't know if it's my ear that's watching or my eye that's listening. Unquote. Despite the absurdities of the story, the sheer silliness of some of the characters, Lohengrin contains music of great beauty and addictiveness. We need to hear this early work every few years to remind us of the revolutionary advances of the music dramas that would follow over the next three decades and of what made them possible. Once again, just weeks after that splendid Die Velkura from Melbourne Opera, Wagner reveals himself, notwithstanding his longueurs, his ambiguity, his seemingly endless thorniness for European directors with their fretful consciences, reveals himself as indispensable for the health of any serious opera company and its audience. At his best, Wagner stirs us, slays us, seduces us, as no other composer can, a unique entrancement. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.